War is a human endeavor. It is by its nature a social activity. Strategic planning, therefore, depends on understanding the enemy culture as an essential component to defining victory in the ancient art of modern warfare. Welcome back to the ancient art of modern warfare. I'm Chris Mayer. Over the last two episodes, I described the common features of all successful wars and how unsuccessful wars seem to find myriad ways to avoid being successful. These ways included various combinations of Sun Tzu's saying about knowing yourself and knowing the enemy. Specifically, this means belligerents not knowing themselves, not knowing the enemy, or being really clueless about both themselves and the enemy. We generally think of these adages as being applied to the operational and tactical levels. That is, did the commander know his troops, his equipment, his logistics? Did he understand the enemy's capabilities and weaknesses? This knowing, however, is even more important at the strategic level. It will determine the direction of strategy, objectives, and end state. A successful end state, that is, a just and lasting peace, depends on getting this right. That depends on understanding the culture, or cultures, of the enemy side and your own. At the very beginning of his work on war, Clausewitz defines war as an act of force to compel our enemy to do our will. There are three components here, force, will, and compulsion, or using the word he uses a short time later, coercion. I will talk about force and will a little bit later, Right now, let's look at coercion. If, as Uncle Carl writes, the enemy is to be coerced, you must put him in a position that is even more unpleasant than the sacrifice you call on him to make. Although Clausewitz writes that leaving the enemy totally defenseless puts him in the worst possible position, he also writes that this may not be possible, or sometimes even desirable. There are even cases where the total destruction of the enemy's forces is not enough to secure victory. We have seen examples of this from Napoleon's invasion of Spain up to the very recent history. So then, how do we put the enemy into a position that is even more unpleasant than the sacrifice you call on him to make? That is where you must understand the enemy. Yes, you must know his military capabilities, but that's only part of understanding. You must understand his society, the government, the people, and their cultures. If possible, you should understand these things better than he knows it himself. The idea here is to not require a sacrifice on the enemy's part that will drive him to more resistance than you are willing to overcome, or can overcome. The first part in doing this is to understand what the war is about. What do you want to achieve by the war? It's amazing to me that there are so many examples of nations going to war without understanding what the war is supposed to achieve. This is not a new phenomenon, as Sun Tzu and Clausewitz both comment on it. Next, you need to understand the value the enemy is likely to place on what you want to achieve. This is rarely a monetary value. More often, this is a cultural value. Here are some examples. In 1999, allegations of human rights abuses against the majority Albanian population in the Serbian region of Kosovo led to NATO military intervention targeting Serbia. Serbia, however, placed great historic and cultural value on Kosovo, far in excess of its value measured in land, population, or resources. Kosovo is where the Serbian people fought off the invading Ottoman army. 
For Serbians, it was their mythic equivalent of the Alamo. I don't know that this was ever fully understood by NATO's political leaders. Japan famously misread American culture in its attempt to get a free hand in its conquest of the Pacific. The Japanese did not believe that America would react so strongly to an attack on a naval base that the Japanese thought of as a peripheral American colony. They misread American isolationism. Not all of the Japanese leaders. It is said that Admiral Yamamoto, who studied in the United States, cautioned differently, but he was ignored. A few years earlier, Hitler was able to leverage cultural aspects for his expansion into the Rhineland, Austria, and the ethnic German areas of Czechoslovakia to keep Western powers from acting against Germany. Hitler understood that the peoples of France and Great Britain were reluctant to start another war with Germany less than 20 years after the bloodbath of the First World War, and particularly a war to keep Germany from annexing ethnic German populations, populations that seemed to want to be united with Germany. Finally, after knowing what you want to achieve by the war and what cultural value your enemy places on what you want to achieve, you have to determine what you need to do to overcome the enemy's will to resist and whether you have the means to overcome that resistance and whether your own societal and cultural values have the will to use that amount of force and methods of applying that force. Again, this may be more than just destroying his armed forces on the battlefield. Or it may require minimum effort for things the enemy does not particularly value. For German expansion from 1936 to 1938, Hitler correctly assessed that minimal combat power would be required even when he moved from the solidly ethnic German Sudetenland into the rest of Bohemia. Japan, taken completely by surprise by American will to resist and keep fighting, was unprepared and unable to overcome that will to resist. NATO was also surprised by Serbia's resistance and it had to escalate airstrikes to target civilian infrastructure and initiate a land invasion before overcoming Serbia's will to resist. It is, however, possible to understand the importance of the cultural-societal impact of war and misidentify the proper pressure point. This can result in turning what the attacker believes to be the weak point into a rallying point for resistance. This was the case in the concept of strategic bombing. Italian military theorist Giulio Douay believed that by targeting the civilian population for aerial bombardment, that population would rise up against their own government and demand an end to the war. This idea was in direct opposition to the laws and customs of wars they existed in the early 20th century, but Douay considered them irrelevant. Douay believed that by doing this, the war would end more quickly and overall more lives would be saved. This theory proved untrue in practice. Instead of people rising up, the populations of Britain and Germany rallied in support of the war effort. The population of Japan seemed equally undeterred. Untold hundreds of thousands of civilians died because of this error in understanding societies and war. Sadly, this misunderstanding seems to continue to this present day. Now I want to go back a bit. Earlier, I referred to cultures, plural, rather than culture. Any society may and probably does have more than one societal culture. The culture of the political elites is often quite different than that of the people who must fight the war. This includes the culture of the armed forces and that of the people who must pay for that war, paying through both the taxes and other costs levied to fight the war, 
and, more importantly, through the blood of their sons and daughters. Martin Van Creffeld noted in his book, The Transformation of War, that military culture is, by nature, different than that of the political elite. It is also different than the culture of the civilian population the military fights for, but is not out of step with it. Each of these cultures have weak points that can be leveraged to coerce the enemy and red lines that reinforce the will of the enemy to resist or keep fighting. A weak point in the military culture can cause the enemy's armed forces to become combat ineffective, turning them from a cohesive and credible force to adopting the motto of Swaf Kipo, or everyone for themselves. A weak point in the culture of the political elite can challenge their confidence or appeal to their self-interests. This is particularly true when the values of the elite are disassociated from the values of the general population and where the power of the elites do not depend on the consent of their people. Examples would include the withdrawal of Russia from the Seven Years' War and the deliberation within the British government whether to continue to resist Germany in 1940. The danger is that if the culture of the political elites is too far disassociated from that of the people they govern, success in coercing the enemy government could cross a red line for its population, causing the people to overthrow their government and continue the war. The Franco-Prussian War provides a demonstration of this. The capture of Napoleon III at Sedan certainly led to the government's capitulation, but this precipitated revolution in Paris and the formation of the Commune there to continue the resistance. Actions that successfully coerce the population, however, will, in modern Western states, force the government to submit. There are several examples of this over the past two centuries. The U.S. withdrawal from the war in Vietnam is particularly noteworthy. Moscow and Hanoi properly identified the U.S. center of gravity as popular will. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, evidence emerged to confirm that they supported operations to deliberately disaffect the American population and our media, which shaped American opinion. This exploited earlier lack of will by the political elite to use the force necessary to coerce Hanoi to submit to our will, if we had ever defined what that will was. The result was to force the United States and our allies to surrender South Vietnam without defeating U.S. forces on the battlefield. Now that I've pointed out some examples, I'm sure you can come up with others of your own. None of this is to say that wars can be won without major combat operations. Those combat operations, however, must have the intended effect of compelling one or more of the cultural groups of the enemy society to submit to our desired political end state. I think that this idea takes on even more importance in contemporary great power competition and the emergence of hybrid warfare. More than ever, strategic success will depend on identifying cultural weak points and red lines, and may be more important than identifying the strengths and weaknesses of the enemy's military forces. Moving on in the understanding of war as a human endeavor, the next podcast will examine the role of great men in military history. This will go beyond the virtues of a military leader, looking at how individuals have, or can have, an impact far outside of the inherent capabilities of the forces they lead, and that change the strategic direction of war. Please come back and join me then, Chris Mayer, for the next episode of The Ancient Art of Modern Warfare.